Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. And tonight, we're going to talk about the Sons of Thunder. And the Sons of Thunder are otherwise known as the Sons of Zebedee. Um, and uh, Zebedee's sons, James and John. So just to remind you the calling um, of James and John, we've already read it, um, but it, this is where it is. So it's, it's fairly short, really. Uh, Mark 1, 16 through 20. In fact, it's kind of connected with a different calling we've already read. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. But that's not who we're talking about tonight. After that, it says this, when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So remember, James and John were fishermen. There's a couple of things we actually do learn from this passage, just this very brief passage almost right away about these two. We know that they're sons of Zebedee. Literally, he was their father. And it appears that their fishing business was a, was a family business. Now, as far as we know, Simon and Peter were not fishing with their father. But with John and James, it's kind of a legacy business. It's a family business. He's been a fisherman. But there's something else we learn right off the bat. And that's that, what does it say? Who did they leave behind when they followed Jesus? They left their father and the hired men. Which, that tells us something about Zebedee right there. It tells us that Zebedee was rich enough to have hired men. That as far as fishermen go... Zebedee seems to have been a wealthy one, and their family business seems to have been a good one, seems to have been profitable enough that they had hired men. In fact, there's other indication throughout the Gospels that James and John come from a family not only of wealth, but of power and prestige. Um, In fact, there's very possibly connections to the high priest. In fact, it may be that John and, of course, his father are Levites, that they are part of that lineage from which the priesthood comes. There's, a, there's a, a particular theory out there that even says that the, the Gospel of John, that it is written uh, based upon the book of Ezekiel. And the book of Ezekiel is the only prophet that is actually a priest. And as we read the book of Ezekiel, we're reading the, the, kind of the mind of a priest during, the, 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 uh, during a time when the priesthood was very corrupt. And some people have argued that John, in writing the Gospel of John, is similarly writing from the perspective of someone with a priestly mindset during a time when the priesthood was very corrupt. Whether or not John is a Levite and his father is a Levite and James is a Levite, whether or not that's true, we do see connections to the high priest. And we'll see this when we look at John next week. But just as an example, as a reminder, um, at the, there's a moment. Remember when Jesus is crucified, the apostles are all over the place, right? First, they say they'll follow him to the ends of the earth. And then Peter actually tries to fight. And then Jesus says, don't fight. And then they all run when Jesus gets taken, and then John and Peter kind of regret running, and they end up going back to kind of find out what's going on with Jesus. And at that moment, it says that John and Peter were able to get very close to the trial. They were actually able to hear what was going on in the trial of Jesus because of John's connections to the high priest, because John was known to the high priest. So there is this this picture of John's family, John and James and Zebedee, as being wealthy, and having some influence and some prestige and some power among the Jewish world. There's another interesting thing, and that's that, think of all the apostles and how many of them do even know who their father is. 
I don't know if we know another one, but we do know not only who their father is, we know who their mother is. So their mother is a woman named Salome, and she's actually one of the women at the crucifixion. And so there's four women that are listed specifically as being at the crucifixion of Jesus. There's Mary, Jesus' mother. There's Mary of Mary and Martha, uh, who are friends of Jesus. And there's Salome, and I'm just glad her name isn't Mary, but she's the mother of James and John. And and so we actually know both their mother and their father. And as we're going to see later, and as we can see from Salome being at the, resurre- at the crucifixion rather, and at the resurrection, what we can see is that Salome was a disciple of Jesus in her own right. She wasn't just there because of her sons. She was a disciple. She hung out with Jesus. We're going to see that uh, in a little bit here as well. And then these are the things we know. But knowing all this, the fact, it's interesting to me that we actually know who their father and who their mother is, and yet their nickname is Sons of Thunder. And so the question is why? Why why nickname them after something that doesn't have to do with this, in fact, pretty important lineage that they seem to have through Salome and through Zebedee? First of all, I just got to acknowledge Zebedee is a great name. Uh, First of all, we don't have a lot of names that start with Z. Most of the names that do start with Z come from the Bible, Zephaniah, Zechariah, but the funnest one to say is Zebedee. So just for a moment, just because I love the way words sound, if you're at home and if you're here, just say Zebedee. Zebedee. Thank you very much. It's just a great name to say, Zebedee. And so, but they aren't called the sons of Zebedee. They're called the sons of thunder. And I don't think it just is referring to Zebedee like Zebedee was this thunderous guy. I, I've, ma- I've made a joke in the, fa- in the past, and we'll see why you will see this story, that maybe it's their mom that's actually uh, being referred to as the thunder, but I don't think it's either. I think there's something else that is being said. The first thing is I want you to see who gave them this nickname. Who is responsible for them being known as the sons of thunder? And we see this in Mark chapter 3. So Mark chapter 3, 13 through 19 says this. Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and they might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. This reminds us that the word apostle means sent out. So it's not just that these, he has a lot of disciples that follow him. As we talked about, Salome is a disciple that follows him around, hangs out with him. Mary and Martha, probably Lazarus. These are all guys that hang out with Jesus. But apostles are those he sent out specifically. Now, they're not the only ones he sent out, but it's interesting. This is reminding us that's what it means. He goes on this mountainside. He calls those he wanted. Clearly, he didn't just stand on the mountainside and holler. We already know he went around and collected these people. But he kind of pulls them together and he sends them out specifically to preach and to have this authority to drive out demons. So that's just a reminder of kind of what it means to be an apostle is that you had a specific authority and you were called to a specific thing. And then it reminds us who these 12 are. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them, he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So we find out that their nickname, sons of thunder, is given to them by Jesus. Jesus is the one who decides to call them sons of thunder. And we don't know why, But I find that interesting, and it gives us perhaps a hint, and we can see one story, which may be sort of the explanation of why Jesus chooses to kind of saddle them with this nickname, Sons of Thunder. And that's one of the two main stories that we see about James and John that I want to show you. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, it says this, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So let's get this context, because this is really important. So what's happening is, Jesus knows the crucifixion's coming. 
He knows he's getting to the point where the Romans and the Pharisees are going to work together to capture him, to try him, to condemn him, and to execute him. And that's why it says he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. There's, there's a sense that things are, are turning in a bad way. You'll see in a second, even the apostles are wondering if this is a smart idea to go back to Jerusalem. But Jesus is determined to do so because that's why he came. He came to die and he knows that that's what's going to happen. So this is what it says. The time is approaching for him to be taken up to heaven and Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because... He was heading for Jerusalem. So there's a political context you need to understand here. What's happening here is political. There's conflict. There's cultural conflict here that's occurring. So to make it as simple as we can, here's the deal. The Jews believed they were the true Jews. The Samaritans believed they were the true Jews. And each of them believed the other were fake Jews, (laughs) uh, were heretics. Now, there's a lot of complication about this, but this is a political cultural conflict that goes all the way back to Solomon's kingdom. So David had this united kingdom of Israel during their glory days. He passes it on to his son Solomon, who makes it, if anything, more powerful. But after Solomon dies, the kingdom enters a civil war. And after the civil war, they end up divided into two nations, one which is called the north of Israel and the other is called south Israel, except they get their own names. Northern Israel eventually becomes called Samaria. Southern Israel is called Judah. And there's argument about who's really real. And who is the proper inheritor of the kingdom of David? It gets more complicated because one of the things the Jews were told not to do by God was to, uh, was to marry outside of the, the Jewish culture and race. And yet both did. The northern Israel did and southern Israel did. But they begin to argue about who did this more. <laughs> who was less pure? Who was less purely bred? And so because of this, the Jews and Samaritans each looked down on each other Each considered the other not true Jews, not purely bred, and not theologically accurate. And it was a very, very significant cultural political issue. One of the big issues that they argued about was whether you should worship in Jerusalem or you should worship on a different mountain. The Samaritans believed that you shouldn't worship in Jerusalem. The Jews believed you should worship in Jerusalem. So that leads us to where we are today. One of the things that happened is Jesus shows up as the Jewish Messiah, something that both the Samaritans and the Jews are waiting for. And annoyingly and frustratingly, as you read through the Gospels, one thing that Jesus refuses to do that both sides expect him to do is to pick a side. (laughs) They want Jesus to declare who are the true Jews. And Jesus refuses to do so. Take a close look at the story about the woman at the well and the Samaritan there, the conversation he has with her. She asks him questions he actually refuses to answer. And so he refuses to declare one of them right and one of them wrong. And so at this moment, though, what he is doing is he's going to Jerusalem for Passover. Now, he's going for his own crucifixion, but he's also going for this festival. The Samaritans don't believe he should go to Jerusalem for this festival. So as he's on his way there, he's determined to go there. He comes to the Samaritan village. Perhaps it's one he's already preached in. Maybe it's the woman at the wells village. Who knows? But he's going through the Samaritan village and he says, can we stop? Can we just stop in for some hospitality, get a rest on our way to Jerusalem? And they say no, because we don't like that you're going to Jerusalem at all. Because to us, it looks like you're taking a political side. To us, it looks like you're coming down on the sides of the Jews and we don't like it. So that's the setup. Got it? So they say, they, they, he's on his way, he sends messengers to get ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. 
When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and then he and his disciples went to another village. So I got to tell you the truth. I have this thing when I read scripture. I sometimes think things are funny that maybe aren't supposed to be funny. I'm not sure if this is, but this makes me laugh. This whole thing is so humorous to me for this reason. James and John are clearly overreacting to this moment, right? Here's this political dispute. The Samaritans didn't say, we're going to kill you. They didn't say, we're going to hunt you down. They didn't say anything except... We are not going to extend you the hospitality you asked. Now, that may be rude, but are you going to go slay a family because they choose not to invite you into their house? This is James and John's reaction to the Samaritans' refusal to make way to be hospitable to the apostles and Jesus is they're like, shall we just wipe them all out? Shall we call fire down from heaven on judgment on them? Now, the, the first thing is you could ask if they're just being presumptuous about their own power, Right? but I don't think they are. I think this is more akin to like when Peter said to Jesus, if you call me, I'll walk on the water. They're not saying we have the power inherently to call fire down. As far as I know, they've never had that power, but they're saying, Jesus, we'll do it for you. You've sent us out. You've shown us already. We can conquer demons. You've shown us we have certain power through you. If you want us to, we will call down fire on these heathens of judgment on your behalf. So I don't think they're being necessarily presumptuous, but there is a lot of hubris in it nonetheless, right? There's a lot of pride in it. And they're thinking, we're going to take care of it. But the big thing is just the overreaction. The big thing is, this is crazy. The Samaritans are like, no, 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 we're not really interested in having you hang out with us. And James and John are like, kill them all. (laughs) Let's just wipe out the whole village. And they seem to think Jesus would affirm this. Not only do I love their overreaction, but I love the way... The, the, the author, Luke, says the next couple sentences really show you how stupid their overreaction is and how simple the solution to the problem is. The first thing Jesus does is he turns and rebukes him. He says, come on, guys, this is crazy. But then very simply, Luke just says this. I mean, what are you going to do about this, right? This is a political affront. This is a, this is a problem. They've said, no, they're not going to take you. What are we going to do, Jesus? What should we do? He's like, well, we're not going to call fire down them. You know what we're going to do? Next line. Then he, is, then he and his disciples went to another village. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's really simple, isn't it? <laughs> They're like, you can't stay here. And Jesus' answer is, okay, your loss. We'll just go to another village. He doesn't seem to feel that this has to be sort of dealt with. This is really important, obviously. We live in a day of, of real political outrage. Everybody's politically outraged. Everybody wants to do something enormous. It's like we all want to call fire down on each other. And sometimes all we need to do is just go to another village. Really, it's okay. You don't have to make everything a big statement. And that's what Jesus does here. He just turns and he says to them, we'll we'll go somewhere else, right? But here's the other thing I wonder about this story. It says he turned and rebuked them. What's he rebuking them for? Their anger, their impulsiveness, their impetuous attitude, their pride, and their hubris. And it would not surprise me at all if he turns to them and in his, in his rebuke, there isn't a little twinkle in his eye and he begins to call them sons of the lightning. What do they want to do? They want to call fire down from heaven. Isn't that kind of what sons of thunder do? Isn't that what people in control of the lightning does? It wouldn't surprise me if part of the rebuke is a little bit of a gentle teasing, a nickname which sticks, which they are saddled with for the rest of their lives. 
one which Jesus pulls out every now and then when their anger begins to reveal itself, when their hubris begins to show up. And he says, oh, there's my sons of thunder. One with affection and love, which I think as we'll see from John last week, John doesn't take offense at next week. I said last week, that would be weird to do that. Next week, (laughs) but something that nonetheless has that reminder to them. There is a tradition, there's a theological tradition coming from people who claimed that they were pastored, claimed and, and plausibly so, that they were pastored by John himself in Ephesus. Jerome and Justin and other, other early church fathers who said they were pastored by John himself. They tell us the tradition is John struggled with the temper. That one of the things that John, and not that he was okay with it, he never justified it, but that he himself struggled with, that he did not like in his own character was a temper was in anger. And is it possible that this is, certainly looks like that here, where he goes from zero to 10 really fast. And so maybe this is why they're called the sons of thunder, because they have this anger and they have this hubris. There is another example. The next next sort of major story about James and John as brothers together shows this same hubris and this same sort of impulsivity. Not their anger, but it does show this hubris. Let's take a look at that story. It's Mark 10, 32 through 34. It says, They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. So this is essentially, this is the same story. This is the same trip. Why are the apostles astonished and why are those following afraid? Because Jesus is determined to go to Jerusalem, and it's a bad idea. (laughs) Humanly speaking, it's not a great idea. They're afraid he's going to die. And the Messiah can't die. That's not right. The timing is wrong. If he wants to start a revolution, well, maybe, but he's not talking like that. So they're following him to Jerusalem, and he does an interesting thing. It says, again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. Now, this is interesting. What I'm about to read you is so specific and so clear that it makes some people so uncomfortable that it's, it's hard for them to fathom Jesus could have been this clear to his apostles that they like to claim that this was added by a later scribe. But there's no evidence that this was added by a later scribe. I think it is amazing, though, that he is this specific and this clear, and the apostles are very entrenched in their own denial. One thing I want you to realize as I read this, it says, again, he took the 12 aside. You know why it says that? Because this is actually the third time he's about to tell them what he's about to tell them. And this is what he tells them. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to Jerusalem, he said. And the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. All right, before we even read any further, this is not good news. (laughs) This is terrible. And it's easy to be hard on them and say, how can they miss such clear declaration of what's coming? Because it makes no sense. I mean, there's every reason to understand their denial and the strength of their denial. First of all, they would not be the only people in history to ever enter denial when they find out their loved one is going to die. But more than that, it's also changing, it's overturning their entire worldview about the Messiah. They are now, I think, at this point in the story, pretty convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. 
They've seen him do miracles that only the Messiah could do. And the Messiah is here about to die, and that does not match their understanding of what the Messiah is going to do. By the way, he uses the phrase son of man. Son of man literally just means human, right? Except not to the Jews. The last time son of man was really used was in Daniel. Daniel is referred to, and Ezekiel. Daniel and Ezekiel both used the phrase son of man. And what it came to be mean, what it came to be understood of by the Jews was a description of the Messiah. That this was a term for the Messiah. So when he says the son of man will be delivered, he's saying, I, the Messiah. So he's deliberately not only telling them what's happening to him, but he's challenging their theological worldview at the same time. He's saying, I am the Messiah and I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be spit upon. I'm going to be sent to trial. I'm going to be condemned and I'm going to die. So it's challenging their worldview. And let's just be honest, it's also extremely painful thought. These are not only his followers, they are his friends. They love him a lot. We see that in all these stories. They're very attached to him. John being, as we know, one of the most devoted, as we'll see next week. And so hearing him say this, it's just not something they want to believe. But there's one other reason they have a hard time with this. It's because every time he talks about this, he says one more thing, and he says it here. After he's very clear that he will be mocked and spit on, flogged and killed, he then says this, three days later, he will rise. All right, let's... Let's give them some, some grace and some understanding that when the guy you're talking to, the guy you love, the guy you've walked with for years, keeps saying to you, I'm going to die and I'm going to come back to life. I understand they've seen examples of it, so they're not completely without accountability here, but just, just be human for a moment as they were human. And if you had a friend, no matter how amazing you thought he was, if he said to you, I'm going to die and I'm going to come back to life, you might struggle with that also. <laughs> I would. <laughs> So there's this combination of events that he's saying to them that's just so hard to understand. But that's what he tells them. Now, the reason I set all this up is because I want you to see what an emotional conversation this is for Jesus. We know that Jesus feels the pain of what's going to happen. We know later he's going to pray and sob and sweat drops of blood because this is a hard thing that he's doing. So as he expresses this to him, even look at the words he uses. They will condemn him to death. We'll hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. The specificity of it is very painful. And I, you could even argue that maybe part of the reason Jesus is using a third person here is not just to emphasize the Messiah, but maybe it's to distance it from himself a little bit because it's really hard to say, I will be beaten and spit upon and flogged and killed. So it's a very emotional moment. And yet what we're going to see in James and John's response is it is at best tone deaf and cruel. And it is at worst a complete misunderstanding of everything he said. And it is likely all of the above. Here's what it says. So this is what he's just told them. He's told them this horrific sequence of events that's going to happen to him. And his best friends do not say to him, oh my gosh, that's awful. Instead, they say this. Then James and John, the sons of Debedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Okay, that's an interesting response. <laughs> I'm about to die. Well, good. Can you do us a favor? What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They said, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. 
Can you grasp what's happening here? So here's a, it reminds me of the prodigal son. In the story of the prodigal son, we have a son who comes to his father and says, I want your inheritance. And the weird thing about it is he's asking for the inheritance he's not supposed to get until the father is dead. So it's as if he's saying, by the way, when you die, I want your stuff, but I want it now. It's like a younger brother saying to an older brother, when you're dead, can I have your room? And Jesus has just said, I'm going to die. And John and James say, hmm, can we be leaders? <laughs> now, it's possible they didn't understand him. I suspect what's happening here is they don't really believe he's going to die. I suspect they hear him say he's going to rise again. And what they do is they latch onto that as a metaphor. And they say, Jesus is telling us he's going to be beaten and mocked, uh, mocked and flogged and spit on. He's going to almost die. And then he's going to come back. He's going to be victorious. And they're saying, when you come back to that victory, can we be with you? Now, that's not completely bad, but even if they don't believe he's going to die, you do understand how unfeeling this is. By the way, yeah, we hear everything you're saying about all the suffering you're going to go through. All we care about is, can we be there when you're victorious? <laughs> wow. This is hubris. This is impulsive. This is not a great look for James and John. You see that, right? And it's not just that they want to be at glory. It's the timing of their question. In some ways, all they're asking is that they want to continue to be in the inner circle of Jesus' people, which they already are, so it's not that outlandish at one sense, but the timing is awful. And it shows that they're being selfish and ambitious at a moment when Jesus is being incredibly vulnerable and unburdening himself to them. And just think of that in human terms, how awful that is. Now, I, I should make this clear too. In the book of Matthew, Matthew tells us that it's their mother that makes the request that their mother, Salome, comes, kneels down in front of Jesus and says, will you do me a favor? And he says to her, what favor shall I do? And she says, John and James, have one sit on your left and one on your right. She very wisely doesn't say which one should be on the left and which one should be on the right, but she asks if he'll do both. I think what that means is this. I don't think it's a conflict. I don't think it's a contradiction. Like we've talked about before, people don't speak in unison, but the Bible portrays that they all have the same goal. And I think what we see is two things. This tells us, number one, it tells us that Salome is hanging out with Jesus a lot. See, I don't think she came to Jesus just for this conversation. I think she was following him to Jerusalem. I think she was with him. And so she's with James and John. She is there. She's one of his followers. And I think that it tells us that they all made this request together. Nothing in here says that James and John were coerced into this by their mom. They are very much willing participants. In fact, it's interesting that even in Matthew, when it says that she initiates the conversation, which she very well probably did, when that she initiates it, it then says that when Jesus responds, he doesn't talk to her, he talks to them. And that's not because he's disrespecting her, it's because he knows where this is really coming from. <laughs> Which leads to the question of why have mom ask if it's really coming from James and John? And that leads us back to the possibility that it's because Salome is powerful and important, like her husband Zebedee. And maybe in the Jewish world, they have their connections to the priesthood, and so they think mom can help. If she takes this up with Jesus, it'll even push it a little bit more. It gives a little more oomph, a little more gravitas. Either way, the point is, all three of them are asking the same favor at an incredibly bad time. So let's go back to the request itself. As I said, I think probably the easiest way to understand this is they don't really grasp what's happening. They're not so cruel as to think he's actually going to die. They are so cruel as to accept he's going to suffer and move right on past that to their glory they don't think he's going to die. And they just want to be part, continue to be part of the inner circle. But Jesus knows right away they don't understand. And he responds like this. 
you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. I love that phrase because, again, thinking about the humanity of Jesus, if I just burdened myself with somebody and said, these horrible things are happening to me, and their response is one of selfishness and ambition, I'm just mad. But Jesus is probably not tickled with their response, but he understands. He says, you don't really know what you're saying. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Here's what's interesting. He's already told them what his cup is. He's already told them what his fate is. He's already told them what baptism of suffering he's going to go through. And that's really what he's referring to, although I think they still miss it. He's saying to them, I just told you my cup is to be beaten, mocked, flogged, and killed. Are you, when you say you want to be with me in the kingdom, do you understand that's what I'm asking you? And they say, we can. You can argue if they understand what they're saying or not. We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. You know what, he says? You are going to suffer. <laughs> you are going to be mocked and flogged and spit upon and in, in most cases for the apostles, executed. You are going to drink my cup. You are going to get my glory, but it's not going to be what you thought it was. <laughs> you are going to share in my glory, but it's not going to be the glory you're thinking. You are going to be part of my kingdom, but it's not going to look like you're thinking now. And he goes on to say this, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. We could probably spend several weeks on the theology of that without coming to a conclusion of exactly what Jesus means here. But I do want you to hold that thought because I want to show you one possibility of what it means later, which relates to this idea of suffering and crucifixion that they're not getting. So hold that thought, but let's go on. Let's see what happens next. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know, okay, so before we go on, when the 10 heard about it, they became indignant. The word indignant here is a little too soft. They became furious. That's what the word here means. They became very, very angry. James and John did this inappropriate thing, and they are very upset about it. But I want you to again think about this from Jesus' perspective. Here he is. He's talking to the 12 closest people in his life, the people he wants most to be like him. He unburdens himself and says, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to die. I'm going to be suffering. And before he knows it, what are they focused on? Him? No. They're all focused on their own feelings, their own outrage, their own frustration, their own desire. They're arguing about who's going to be at the top of the heap. They are so selfish and ambitious at this moment when he's trying to share with them something really important. That's so frustrating. I can, I can just imagine anybody who has any position of authority, if you have kids, if you're a boss, if you're a pastor, if you're a group leader, if you're anybody, if you've ever had, if you're a teacher, if you've ever had any position of authority anywhere, you know this frustration. Where you're trying to get people to think about what's important and their selfishness, their ambitiousness rises up and it's so frustrating that their perspective is so completely wrong. And here Jesus is, and here they are, and this is what they're doing. But Jesus being Jesus and being better than I am, which is an understatement, we all know that. Jesus being Jesus, he sees it as a teachable moment. And he says, here's what you need to understand. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see how this whole passage is all tied together. 
He starts by telling them what's going to happen to him, and he closes by reminding them what's going to happen to him. But in the middle, he explains to them, this is also who they should be. This is the cup they should drink. We're not to be like the rest of the world where we want power and we want authority and our selfish ambition takes place. We are to be different because even the God that we serve is different because he came to serve. The apostles are arguing about who gets to be top dog and Jesus says, I'm top dog and I'm just trying to explain to you that I'm going to lay my life down. That's what it means to be top dog. Do you want that? Do you want that? You say you do, but do you? So this is the sons of thunder. They're angry, they're impetuous, they're impulsive, they're selfish, and they're ambitious. Not a good look. <laughs> this is who they are. What I want to focus on for the short time remaining tonight and for the rest of next week is the question of what changed them. How did they go from being the sons of thunder? How does John, for example, go in history from being the son of thunder to being the apostle of love? What changes them? Let's start with James, and then we'll talk about John next week. James won't take us long, because the truth is, we don't know much about James apart from what his interactions with John as sons of thunder. We do know a few things. I just want to be really clear. Number one, he's not the writer of the book of James. And I, James and Mary's, I'll just acknowledge, I get them confused in scripture all the time. And even though I know better, sometimes I'll say the wrong, I'll, I'll connect them and then later go, they weren't. And it is true. A few weeks ago, I, I, I said as an aside that James the apostle was the author of the book of James. I know he's not. That was incorrect. In case you heard me, I'm fessing up now. He's not the author of the book of James. We know this. I'll show you why we know it in a second. He's also not Jesus' brother, James. Now, Jesus has a brother named James who becomes a pillar of the church. He becomes really important, but he's not one of Jesus' 12 apostles because he doesn't become converted until after Jesus comes back to life. And let's be super honest. If my brother claimed to be the Messiah, I would require something like that before I believed him as well. But we know that this James isn't either of these, and we know it for one really important reason. And it's the only individual thing we know about James when he's not connected to John. And it's an Acts, And it says this. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. This happens very early in the church. It happens before the book of James is written. It happens before the, the, the James who becomes the pillar of the church leads the church. So this cannot be that James. But I want you to think about this for a moment. This is that James. This is that impulsive, impetuous son of thunder who wanted to have the glory that Jesus had. And Jesus said to him, you will indeed die. You will indeed suffer. And James does it. And what changed James? What changed this hubris, impetuous, angry person so that he was willing to lay his life down? See, the thing we need to understand about the martyrs in Scripture, and even the martyrs through most of the Middle Ages, is they all had a choice. Every martyred individual in these categories, in these moments, was told, all you have to do is stop preaching the gospel. All you have to do is recant. All you have to do is stop telling people that Jesus is alive. And if you do that, we'll let you go. In fact, we'll, we'll, we'll prop up your PR. We'll send you on a speaking tour. 
to let people know you were wrong. So James has a choice here. James, who was all about his own interest when he heard about Jesus' death, who just wanted to get himself to the upper echelons here, he's willing to die. It's also interesting that he is the only apostle other than Judas who kills himself. We'll get to Judas, obviously, in a few weeks. He's the only apostle whose death is even recorded in Scripture. Why is that? And it's recorded here as an aside. This is the entire context. This is the entire sentence. He had brother, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. It's like a footnote in the book of Acts. Why does the author Luke treat it as such a minor thing? Because it is clear that the New Testament writers do not think the deaths of the apostles are worth a lot of writing about. (laughs) Why? Why do they not? And why are the apostles willing to do this? James is the first apostle martyred for the faith. He's not the first martyr. I like to think of John the Baptist as the first martyr. Now, he's killed before Jesus is crucified, so you can argue whether that counts. But he was martyred because he refused to give up on his belief that Jesus was the Messiah. And Stephen, of course, of the, of the deacons, of the seven, he was stoned by Paul, or at least under Saul's authority before Saul's conversion. But of the apostles, James is the first one to be martyred. James, the man who wanted to be at the top, who wanted to be on the right or the left of Jesus, the one who was full of hubris, who's called sons of thunder because of his hubris, because of his anger. What changed him in just a few short years? But it's not just him, it's all the apostles. They were a mess. When Jesus is being crucified, they all ran. And they were all huddled in a room in desperation, not believing that they were the beginning of some great movement, but thinking they were at the end of a mistaken movement, a failed movement. Their friend and their Messiah was gone. And yet we know from tradition, though scripture doesn't record it, we know from other historical sources, very plausible sources, the tradition passed down is this. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome crucified upside down because he didn't think himself worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. Andrew was crucified in Greece. Thomas was speared by a mob in India. Philip was tortured to death by a proconsul of Rome in Asia Minor in retaliation for Philip having converted his wife. Bartholomew was killed in southern Arabia for his faith. James, son of Alphaeus, was stoned and beaten to death in Syria. Simon the Zealot was killed in Persia after refusing to bow to the sun god of Persia. Matthias, who was Judas's replacement, he doesn't get out of this. He was burned to death in Syria. Only John is said to have died of old age. But let's remember, that doesn't mean that John wasn't tortured, beaten, imprisoned, and exiled. He was all of the above. There's someone else who was crucified, and I want to touch on this very briefly because I think it helps us maybe understand what we can learn from the lesson of James. He's not a martyr exactly because he didn't die for his faith. He died for criminal activities, but we know that he died full of faith in Jesus. And it's relevant because remember how John and James asked to be on the right and left of Jesus when he was lifted up and when he was glorified. And in his answer, he alluded to the cup of suffering they would need to take and then said that it was up to somebody else, up to God, to determine who would be on his right and his left. And there's a lot of things he might have meant by that. But what if he meant this? Luke chapter 23 says this. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, 
the other on his left. Jesus says, can you take the cup? And he's talking about his suffering. And he says, you're not going to be on my right and my left in my glory when I die. Somebody else will be. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers also came up and mocked him and they offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. He just joins in with the crowd. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you were under the same sentence? We're punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. I want you to notice the faith of this man and compare it to James and John's request. James and John said, we want to be on your right and left, but they're thinking victory. They're thinking glory. We want to be, in, in your, we want to be leading in your kingdom, but they're thinking victory and triumph. This man doesn't even ask to be important in the kingdom. He just asks to be remembered. He doesn't even ask to be in the kingdom specifically. <laughs> he just asks that Jesus remember him. But notice the faith of even that. He knows he's dying. You know who else he knows is dying? Jesus. There's no denial for this man. And yet as he looks at Jesus, he's able to see that this man is going to have a kingdom after his death a kingdom important enough that this criminal just wants to be remembered in it. This is an amazing moment of faith, far exceeding what James and John were able to capture and able to see. But the question is, what changed him? Because if you read one of the other gospels, what you'll discover is that this criminal joined in the mocking of Jesus before he changed his mind. That some moment as he's hanging on the cross, he goes from believing that Jesus is a fraud and being angry to believing that Jesus is the Messiah who's going to have a kingdom. And we don't know what changed him. We could speculate perhaps it was the, the words that we hear here where Jesus said, forgive them. That he watched a man who's hanging on the cross able to forgive the people who put him there. But we don't know what changed him. But we do know what changed the apostles. We do know what took them from, from people of selfish ambition and hubris to people willing to lay down their lives for Jesus. But you gotta, you got to think about this for a moment. These men all suffered for the gospel. These men all died with the possible exception of John professing loyalty to Christ, killed by other people. John also died professing loyalty to Christ. Just happened to be of old age. These men could have averted death in every case by simply ceasing to tell the story they were telling over and over. And what was the story they were telling? What was the heart of the story they continued to speak? That Jesus is alive. That Jesus who was dead came back to life. Now, here's the thing you have to recognize. Of all the people in the universe, across all of history, the only people who know with certainty the truth of that story are the people who were there. See, you can argue that later generations fought to the death, were willing to die for a lie they believed because it was a lie they had been told by others. But for these 12, for James, for John, for Peter, for Andrew, for Simon, for Matthias, for Judas, for all of these others, they either saw it or they didn't. 
They either saw Jesus come back to life or they saw him stay dead. And I just have to say, with, with, with genuine passion and perplexity in my mind, I do not understand those of you who refuse to accept that the resurrection of Jesus could possibly be real and yet somehow believe that 12 men would go to their deaths propping up a lie that they knew was a lie. So you have to understand, James had nothing to gain by professing that Jesus was alive and he had everything to lose. I think this is the key. I think this is the first answer to what changed James and John. One thing that changed them was they actually watched a man die and then come back and hug them. (laughs) They saw him come to life. Tradition tells us, well, we know not only did they have to suffer through their own martyrdom, but they had to suffer through the martyrdom of people they loved. They weren't the only ones persecuted. There's a, a story about Peter. The tradition goes further. Before he was crucified upside down, he was forced to watch his beloved wife crucified because the Romans thought maybe he will die his own death, but is he willing to let his wife die for a lie? And as she hangs on the cross, tradition tells us, the history tells us what's written is that as he sobbed, between his sobs and his pleading with the Romans to spare her life and only take his, between his sobbing and his pleading, as he lifted up his eyes to his wife, he said only one thing to her over and over and over. He said, beloved, remember Christ. Beloved, remember Christ. There's no understanding of human nature no understanding of psychology, which says that what Peter meant there was, remember the lie we've been propping up. All it could mean is, remember Jesus lives and you also will live. The resurrection is real. I want to tell you about one more person and we'll wrap up with this. Charles Chuck Colson not an apostle. He's a historical figure figure in America. He was not a good man. Chuck Colson served as special counsel to to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1970. He was a lot like James and John, I think. He wanted to sit at the seat of power. He wanted to sit at the right or the left of the most powerful man in the world, and he did. He called himself, defined himself, proudly declared that he was Nixon's hatchet man. He was embroiled as a hatchet man in one of the most shameful scandals in our presidential history, a scandal so defining for our country as scandals that every scandal since then in politics is named after it, something gate. And when he says he was a hatchet man, this is what it means. He is the one who compiled a notorious list, an enemies list of politicians and journalists and activists that were perceived as threats to the Nixon White House. And he was responsible for discrediting and destroying everybody on that list. He was not a good man. He was selfish and ambitious and he wanted the power. And he went to prison for it. And then something happened. And when he came out of prison... He was a changed man. He converted to Christianity and it was no convenient conversion. He lived another 30 years 
And this was a conversion that reshaped his entire personality and behavior. He became somebody who didn't seek the power that he once sought, who acknowledged and confessed to the sins that he had been involved in and became a man of service. You can Google him if you want, and you can read about both the bad man he was and the good man he became. And the question becomes, as it does with James and John, what changed him? And I bring him up because he answers this question. And I want you to read his answer. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proves it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison and all but John were executed. They would not have endured if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible, he says. And from his experience, as he looked at that, he was changed by his conviction of the resurrection of Jesus. Here's my encouragement, my challenge. Here's the lesson, I think, that we learned from James. And we'll look at lesson number two from John next week. But I think the lesson we learned from James is this. Yes, there's a challenge. It's a difficult challenge. But it's an impossible challenge if you don't understand the hope behind the challenge. The challenge is this. Jesus says, as my follower, sometimes the cup you drink will be bitter. There may be suffering. We are, let's face it, we are incredibly blessed in our country. We have so much freedom. Right now, even over the world, today, there are people that die because of their refusal to deny Christ. There are people that refuse to recant. And because of that, they are executed. There are people that die because they read a Bible, because they go to a church service. We are incredibly blessed. And Paul and God and Jesus, I think they all say to us, enjoy that blessing. Don't feel guilty about it. That's not the challenge. Challenge isn't seek out persecution. The challenge, though, is to recognize the following Jesus doesn't always guarantee the cup will be sweet. It's important we be honest about that. But it's also important we be honest about the hope behind it. Why was James willing to take the cup of bitterness? Why was Peter willing to take the cup of watching his wife die and then being executed himself? Because they believed entirely in the hope of life. They believed this wasn't it. They believed the following Jesus is following Jesus to his kingdom and his kingdom is eternal and it beats all other kingdoms. And he is the resurrection and the life. So my challenge today, tonight for you is yes, Jesus does say, can you take the cup I take? Can you be baptized into the baptism of death that I've been baptized in. But Jesus also says to us, nothing you lose, everything you lose will be recompensed tenfold. Every suffering you feel now will feel momentary and light and nothing compared to the glory to come.
He invites you not to a world, a kingdom where suffering is exalted, but a kingdom of glory and light and beauty and love and joy, which may necessitate, may necessitate that you pass through a suffering and, well, will necessitate. You pass through a suffering and fallen world on the way there. And some of that suffering will hit you. So my challenge to you is not to look forward to suffering. My challenge to you is to remember the cup you take is the cup of life. And the baptism you take is a baptism into a new life. And to look forward to a life of greater beauty and joy and life than you ever imagined. And for that, that is what will make you willing to endure whatever it is that God may have you endure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the lesson from James. We thank you that we can stand confident in the resurrection of Jesus, in the life that is to come, because the people who could tell it was a lie told us it was true, told us it was true at their own peril, at their own suffering, at their own death. Teach us that. Encourage us. Make this a week in which we look forward to the joy, to the life, to the beauty. These things pray in your son's name. Amen. Most churches believe in the value of small groups and a focused church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at Pastor Mac, M-A-C, underscore at Mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.